Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, uh, my co-host, uh, Brianne Kimmel, network leader at Village Global, and Dion Nicholas, portfolio co-founder, CEO of Forethought. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Dion, what is Forethought? And out of all the ideas you could have pursued in AI, why that idea? So the best way to describe Forethought uh, is AI for information retrieval in general. Um, so what we do is we index information in an organization. So your Google drives, your Dropbox, your SharePoint, just all the unstructured information that exists in your documents. And then we build products on top of that to help people become smarter at their jobs. Um, so our first application and a good example of this is in customer support. So our first product is Agatha Answers for Customer Support. We integrate into help desks like Zendesk, Salesforce, and a bunch of others. And we will listen in on support tickets, index past tickets, knowledge-based articles, et cetera. And then we'll give agents suggested answers to help them be more accurate, more efficient, um, and uh, geniuses at their job. So that's our mission, to help everyone be a genius at their job using AI. And so to answer your second question, why forethought? I don't know if I've told you guys this story before, but I've actually been thinking about this idea or like variations of it since I was in high school. Yeah. So a bit of background on me. I'm a math and computers guy. I've always been interested in programming since I was, since I was a kid. Uh, went to University of Waterloo for school, computer science in high school when I had history class and I was really bad at it. So at the time I had this idea to build an AI that would read my notes and quiz me on the material. And so I built like prototype of that. And that was actually literally how I got through history class. So that was my uh, first foray into natural language understanding. And since then, I've just been obsessed with this idea of how AI can help people become smarter and help people become amazing at what they do. Um, so that was the context in school. And then I realized at work that I had a similar problem where there's all this information in the enterprise. You know, all the information is in either a few people's heads or in data silos or whatever that is. But imagine if you had an AI that could pull that out and help you get access to it and help you be a rock star at your job. And so that similar thread is something I've been obsessed with since I was in high school. Yeah. And Brianne, you co-invested with us in this, in this latest round. What excited you most about Forethought? Yeah. In terms of thinking about Forethought, I think what really struck me about what sort of the vision that, that Dion and the team had is that it's something that applies much more broadly, like beyond customer support, but it's rather like, how do we help people be better at their job? And it turns out oftentimes in our day to day, um, in, in the work context is it's really hard to get the information to move quickly. So what happens is, you know, it's very obvious in customer support where a customer support agent may only have access to Zendesk, for an example, um, which, you know, I've spent a bunch of time uh, working there on the go-to-market team. So for me, it, it really struck a chord where I think oftentimes, like, from a consumer standpoint, we aren't sure why customer support takes forever to answer a question. Like, there's a lot of just problems when we email or call customer support. And it turns out, you know, internally, this is one of the most difficult and frustrating and challenging jobs is to be a customer support rep. And it turns out, you know, in addition to dealing with angry customers, you also don't have enough information to do your job well. 
Uh, so when I, you know, first met Dion and talked to the team, it was great to hear that they had this vision of basically connecting all of your internal data sets, which we can talk about that in detail, but that's actually, that in itself is a very, um, challenging task because oftentimes your information is sitting across a number of different, um, places and, and oftentimes, especially a customer support rep may only have access to a Zendesk, um, a Google Drive, like maybe there are different pieces of this equation where they can't answer the questions because they don't have the right information. Let's talk about it, connecting all the data sets. How do we do that? Yeah. So when we, when we started, one of the kind of fundamental beliefs we had was that it should be our job to connect the data sources and it should be our job to onboard customers rather than forcing all the work on them. Um, and so we, we saw ourselves very much like imagine an enterprise search engine you know, the, the philosophy of, hey, we'll integrate here, we'll do all the indexing, and we'll do all that for you. So just a bit of background on my co-founder column. So he has spent a lot of time at HP, Blinks, and Tanmian, and uh, other companies that have done enterprise search in the past. And so uh, when we were in the early days of discussing this problem, like it really felt like a, a search problem, at least on the indexing and data ingest layer. Um, so how it works is we have a team and a suite of connectors, um, and we're building out more every single day. Um, so we'll connect to the API. So like we'll, you know, connect to the Google Drive API and understand how to index that and pull in all the documents automatically. So all, all the customer has to do is just authenticate. So OAuth or whatever, you just give us the credentials, you authenticate. And so if you do that across 10, 20, 30 data sources, like that's, that's RIP. That's one of the things we do. And then on the customer side, they just select a couple connectors and then we index. We have a huge distributed system for doing this. They're up and running in, you know, a few hours or so. And what's cool about this is, so that was just how we thought about it in the early days. Like we're just going to take in all the data and just like treat it like a search engine would. But it ended up being an interesting competitive advantage because when we started talking to customers and, you know, going into competitive bake-offs with other competitors and we found that with most AI solutions, most of the effort is actually on the customer to train the system or to manually tag training data or pass tickets or whatever the information is. And most of the solutions, they tout that they can be launched in six to eight weeks or something like that because of uh, the implementation. And, and we thought this was insane. It was like, why do you need six to eight weeks to launch a, a system? That was that really resonates with our customers as well, in addition to just like the quality in the AI, just the concept that implementation and onboarding is really like a matter of hours rather than weeks. Um, and that allows us to go to market faster and a whole bunch of other things, but that's something we're super excited about. I think that's a really interesting point that you raised because I hear a lot of times where companies will talk about assisted AI or they'll talk about coaching networks. And it feels like oftentimes in those sort of applications of AI, it feels like it actually adds more work and not less work to the individual user. Um, have you heard that? Or is that something that like, how do you remove some of the burden in terms of like, making sure that the agents don't have to do the tagging or they're not searching for the information. Like how did you think about the actual onboarding experience for forethought? Yeah, definitely. So in terms of removing that information, yeah. One one thing we noticed is that with competitive solutions and that sort of thing, agents have to tag and not just agents, but I would say, especially administrators and, and kind of implementation managers to remove that. It really requires a different way of thinking about AI. So let me, let me break down what I mean by that. So in traditional machine learning, it's almost always there's, you know, a training data set 
and you're training this task on like this specific data set for this customer. And then once the machine learns well enough, it can start to automate that data set. And so by nature, when you launch to a new customer, there has to be this data set that exists for that customer. Um, otherwise you just like, you have a cold start problem or you just can't do anything. So for us, we thought about the problem a little bit differently in that we asked ourselves, what could we do with AI that was a little bit more generalizable across customers? And, you know, some of that is, is our secret sauce, so to speak, but effectively our base model is trained in a way that allows us to generalize from all the data we have from existing customers and, uh, some other data sets that we've collected. Um, so that when we launch to a new customer, even the baseline model, the search, the question answering and the categorization and a lot of the other things we provide are really, really good from the baseline. And then again, a new customer comes in and that allows us to train more that allows us to expand to more and more customers. So that was the main thing. And the main insight I would say that uh, we had is that you build your models and you, you, there are like pretty cutting edge algorithms in natural language understanding that allow you to do that. And so it was really just a matter of like having that, that approach and that paradigm to machine learning is that build like everything is your data set really. And then you can expand to multiple customers. That makes sense. Have there been any challenges in terms of like connecting different applications or what have been some of the even internal challenges as far as like to actually create a unified system? I can imagine is quite hard, uh, in the context of enterprise. Like yeah. it, it is likely easier when it's newer applications or ones that have more of like an open API and a, and a sort of framework that you can build on top of. But what about some of the dated systems that companies are using? Yes, exactly. Um, and that's, that's actually a really hard problem in general. So there have been companies in the past that have been able to, you know, attack the, the dated system. So there was like a whole wave of quote unquote enterprise search companies like uh, fast autonomy and a few others that were dealing with dated systems. Uh, we actually started by tackling the cloud-based systems. So our thesis was that, well, hey, we're a San Francisco-based company. We can actually start and gain rapid adoption by tackling other companies who are used to this SaaS and cloud model. Um, so that's one of the reasons we decided to integrate with Zendesk and Salesforce Service Cloud on the front end. And then things like Google Drive and, and Confluence and all that stuff, like cloud-based stuff on the, uh, on the back end in terms of the data sources. So we started there. And then with respect to kind of more dated systems like SharePoint, Point. We are building those out and it's, it's annoying, <laughs> to say the least, because uh, what ends up happening is there's a ton of different configurations and that sort of thing. Um, so again, like, there's some operational complexity hidden there in the sense that we have to do all that work in order to both make it work in general and make it work across different deployments. Um, but these are problems that, though hard, have been solved in the past. And again, like uh, my co-founder has experience dealing with these kinds of systems. Um, so Column literally worked on the connector layer for uh, HP's search suite. Um, so it's like, okay, we, we've, we know how to solve these kinds of problems. Um, but it is definitely a hard one. So like kind of the go to market around that is start with the cloud based ones and the more modern companies. And as you grow into the enterprise, then you can actually afford to spend a lot more money and effort on building new connectors. And then what's nice about that is once you built it for one company, you can reuse it across different companies, right? So the first customer that wants Confluence, once we have built Confluence then every other customer can use it. Um, and that also affects our go to market strategy because then we'll do hacks like um, try to detect what data sources people are using based on what their help center is saying and all that other stuff. Um, and then we're like, hey, okay, we have this bundle of connectors right now. Let's go after companies that probably have a good fit today. And so then that's how we go quickly. Zooming out a little bit, you have this mission of you want to make everyone a genius at work. How do you 
pick support as the first uh, archetype to go after? And what are the different options you could have presented and the trade-offs within? Yeah, definitely. So when we started, all we had was our model. Um, we had this unique insight about building a model that can ingest arbitrary text and then use that to help people answer questions, et cetera. And then from there, it was like kind of doing the whole lean startup thing of, uh, you know, you talk to your customers, you have hypotheses, you validate them. And so before we had built a UI, before we had built a product, we actually were, we tried selling the product, uh, which we didn't know what it was. So we would talk to folks. We knew we wanted to help pe- make people a genius at their job. We were like, Hey, maybe this is an HR thing. Like maybe if the people who are managing employee onboarding and those sorts of things can use this, then like that's who we sell to. And I wrote a blog post about this, but like the hard problem in our business in the very early days was figuring out who the buyer was and how to do that. Um, and so we just started talking to our customers and seeing what resonated. Like, Hey, we have this thing that in general does this. Talk to us about your problems and, and how we might be helpful. And then we found that, so we literally talked to HR teams. We talked to IT teams. We talked to customer support teams. Um, and this is very, very early days, right? Like before we had anything. And the response from some teams like IT and HR was like, this is really cool. I could see how this could be useful. The response from customer support teams was, this is really cool, but we're thinking of actually spinning up a team to go build this pretty soon, right? And that's like a very different response, right? And then it started to become... So there were two things. We realized that, A, there was a huge need for this um, in the customer support world, um, where just like getting access to information, even things like past tickets were just never being used, documents, knowledge bases, et cetera. So we realized there was a huge issue there and people were planning to spend millions of dollars to go and, and do this, right? Like Uber, for example, um, just launched, um, I forgot the name of the thing they launched, but it was like this new customer support platform that saved them tens, 10% on customer support and they spent millions of dollars on it. It was like a huge case study. Um, I'll remember the name in a bit. But so like this was what was happening in 2017. Second, we found that customer support agents were kind of the unsung heroes in, in customer in, in the enterprise, especially in cloud SaaS forward businesses. They were the ones responsible for retention, for increasing your ARR, et cetera. Um, and yet in many companies, they were kind of seen as a cost center. And so by empowering them, we were actually bringing more to their org and they, they like, could feel that they were valued. And so this was, it was starting to become like this two-sided equation of like the, the need in the business side and like the value we could provide to the users. Um, and so we just started digging deeper there. And then the last part about it was that customer support is very ROI driven. So you have your directors of support or your support managers measuring things like time to resolution, reply time, and just like they're measuring pretty much everything. And so by bringing an AI that could have demonstrable impact, right? Like we could actually say things like, hey, we improve your customer support agents time to resolution by at least 10% and in some cases up to 30%. Like we were able to measure that um, through A-B tests and a few other things. So then it became like just a no-brainer for for the customers. And so this was a very good place to bring an AI as opposed to other places where the ROI might be less tangible in the immediate like first uh, first use case. And then within, and you touched on a little bit, but let's expound. When, even within support, how did you figure out what the ideal archetype of company that would be best suited for you. So a lot of it was just talking to different customers and, and <laughs> pitching to them. But um, again, so for our, from our connector strategy, it was like we knew we wanted to talk to customers who were cloud focused um, and just were like, okay with trying out new technologies like AI. Um, so that was like the first criteria. So we didn't start in the very high enterprise. Um, although, of course, you know, we're <laughs> going there. But we started with folks using modern technology. So we're like, hey, Zendesk is a good in, uh, platform for, you know, cloud based and Salesforce Surface Cloud. So one of the things we did do was like as a qualifying criteria, 
are you using Zendesk or are you using Salesforce Service Cloud? So that was why we decided to build on that first and not like Oracle right now or something, right? So it was a, it was a matter of like qualifying out customers based on like whether they would be a good fit and an early adopter type and then expanding from there. Did you at all explore like specific verticals? Like I can imagine like Zendesk over indexes on um, like retail e-commerce. Yeah. There's just like a certain categories of companies where support is not only on the front lines in terms of answering customer interactions, but actually like be- when you have a high volume of transactions and you're, you know, like Black Friday is a very busy time if you're a Zendesk yeah. customer in retail e-commerce. Like did you start to explore any specific verticals? Yeah. So after we had started talking to and, and, and launching our first couple of customers, we started to see patterns and trends. So there were a bunch of customers, for example, um, in like education, ed tech or whatever, where they were getting a lot of these spikes around, you know, class starting or Christmas time or whatever. And like, so we started to see patterns around that in, and then we're also seeing some like bigger companies nowadays, like in the insure tech space and stuff like that, um, where you have like things like claims and questions happening there. Um, so we definitely saw and are seeing a lot of verticals kind of appear. Um, in the early days, it was really just like start talking to customers and see like who resonates the most. But nowadays we're actually, at least from a business development perspective, we're seeing like who are our existing customers and what are they starting to like? What are they, what do they look like? And yeah, and some of those and also like marketplace companies, uh, are really huge and e-commerce, as you said. So we're starting to like take a verticalized approach to how do we do sales? Awesome. Um, Eric and I did a podcast with Josh Stein and we talked about the consumerization of SaaS. Very cool. Um, when you're thinking about go to market, are you selling directly to customer support agents, like agents on the front line, or are you going after more of like a director of support? At what point are you having conversations, um, like, early, early on and where you're at today. Yeah, definitely. So the types of conversations, it's always been for us talking to director of customer support, um, at least on the sales side. But we've been very diligent about like the buyer and the user are actually two different people. Um, and that's just like how, how it is. Um, so when we launch a new customer, we talk to the agents, um, we get really close to their workflows and really understanding how they do work. And those are who we build products for. Those are who we, you know, our designers are talking to, et cetera. So but the sales motion is very is, is relatively top down, at least at the department level. Um, and the reason for this, and this is actually important because I actually believe that if you try to go bottom up with this kind of company in the early days, you might actually fail. And A, it's like, as we started talking to customers, we've realized that you have to go through things like security is really important when you have access to this kind of data. Um, and you're not going to get that from an end user. You're not going to get you know, access to the whole company's drives from just like another agent, right? And so you have to be talking to the people who have access to the data. Um, and you have to also be able to show trust and, and those sorts of things. And, and and so going bottom up is a little bit harder when you have to deal with multiple stakeholders. That makes sense. I'm, I'm smiling because I've, I've heard from a number of companies, like I think right now, early startups, like we want to lean into bottom up, but it doesn't work for every type of company. And I've actually heard the opposite happen where, you know, the goal is to get a certain amount of bottom up users, and then you'll go to the director level. But what happens when the director is not actually happy that all of these individuals are using the product, because <laughs> yeah. it hasn't been reviewed by security, like it hasn't gone through any sort of compliance. And then you have all of these individual instances. However, there hasn't been that consideration for like what's happening at the director level and above. Exactly. So that's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Let's double click on that. What do you think is the criteria of when it works to go bottoms up versus otherwise? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think oftentimes of the examples that come to mind for bottom up, it's usually personal productivity, which 
can then be laddered into team level productivity. I think it's very hard if the end goal is to sell something that will potentially have a very specific team level adoption. I think like if you look at like Slack, if you look at Dropbox, like these are products that have the potential to have company wide usage. They add, um, value to the each individual, like they all operate as their own node. It's not necessarily that you ultimately need the buy-in from one specific perfect person within an organization. Exactly. Exactly. I agree there. And it's, so it's like, if you have like individual level things or like a tightly integrated network, like a team of five or six, um, that can just sign up for something, then you can definitely go the bottom up way. And also, at least for us, when I think about it, as I mentioned, is like, there are some things that like their buying motion, they're used to doing it top down. Um, especially if you have to go through security or legal or other things. Um, or if the price point is really high, really actually that, that could also be another way of thinking about it. Like ACV, if your, you know, average contract is in the hundred K or like millions, then you're definitely not gonna, you're not gonna get that from swiping somebody's credit card. So, um, that's another way of thinking about it as well. Yeah. It's interesting. I think it also depends on team by team. Who are you selling to? Like I've heard, um, sometimes this can backfire specifically if you're selling to like a benefits team or someone in HR, where essentially like a lot of the sort of constraints that a benefits team have is actually tied into broader legislation. And there's a number of reasons why you have to have a very specific buying cycle. There's a very specific like RFP process. And it turns out that has to do with, you know, state national regulation when it comes to people's health insurance. Yeah. So it really just depends on who you're selling to at the team level. What are some of the biggest learnings you've had uh, doing sales? <laughs> First of all, everything in a startup, at least at the CEO level, is sales. So, I mean, you're selling to customers, you're selling to recruits, you're selling to investors. Like, Luckily, I didn't have this bias to, to a lot of degree, but like as an engineer, you have a, sometimes have a bias that like sales is boring. It's just like not a thing, right? Like you're like, I just want to build things and yeah. people will come. Um, so the first, I guess, surprising thing is just like, no, sales is everything, right? Second, doing sales, learning about the sales cycle has been interesting. Like, how do you optimize for minimizing that sales cycle? All the hurdles that we would have gotten through, like, we just didn't know. Like, I didn't even know. Sec- okay, I probably shouldn't say this. Uh, but didn't even know, like, security would be an issue when we went and first, like, made our first deal. But, like, the very first thing they asked us was, like, are you SOC 2 compliant, et cetera? And it's like, um, and this is, you know, back in the, back in the day, but, And so, yeah, like as the company matured, like, you know, we realized, hey, of course, we have to be good stewards of people's data. And this is the kind of thing we're selling. And so like in the very early stages of the company, we're like, okay, we're buttoning down. We're making sure that our infrastructure and everything is secure, you know, going to go through like audits and, and that sort of thing. So that third parties, we have the stamp of approval and that sort of thing. So like little things like that. Well, they're not little, they're huge. Um, but they're things like coming as an engineer, you just wouldn't expect it. Um, so that's one. It's like, you got to understand ROI, I think is, is the other thing that, that makes sense. It's like, you can always, just try to sell people something because you think it's good. But for us, sales has always been tied to the ROI that we can bring. So when we do our sales pitches uh, or if we do like, if, if we do a pilot or something like that, then we will actually show the, the director of support, like here's actually how much productivity you gained. So I think one interesting hack or I guess like key you can unlock is if you can truly tie your product to the ROI, then it's no longer rocket science. Like it becomes like obvious and you're like, okay, like, is it okay to quote a million dollars here? Like, but you're like, okay, if I'm saving you $10 million, then like, this is like, they're just 
this is how much it costs. Like this is how, this is what they're going to buy. Um, and so you kind of got to get out of this, like, you know, the, the nervousness of asking somebody for a million bucks. Right. But like realizing that you're providing them to a million of value. So if you can really focus on what the ROI you're bringing is, then like it actually makes sales become more intuitive and like just a natural part of doing a, you know, doing a conversation. Let's zoom out for a second and look at there's the enterprise search piece, which we've talked about. What about the AI piece? And more specifically, I'm wondering, like, how is AI perceived inside the context of a company compared to like some things that we we see from a consumer standpoint? Because I think there's a lot of questions around like personal data and, you know, how our sort of vision of what AI is like when we see it on TV. How does that change? Like when you're selling it to a larger company? Yeah. So this is interesting because I feel like we have to do a lot of customer education around this. And we like we're just at the beginning of that. Today, I think that AI, especially in the customer support world, is synonymous with automation. Um, so when people think of AI, they think of chatbots or something that can, you know, ticket deflection, um, that sort of thing. But within an enterprise, there's like so much more when it comes to AI. Um, so for us, we like to think a lot about how we augment people rather than automate. It's really all about productivity in the workplace. Um, so as mentioned earlier, it's like, there's a task that has a well-defined input and output. Oftentimes a human is doing that or whatever, a machine is doing that. And then given enough examples of that task, you can have AI do it for you, right? And so that's really the fundamental definition of AI, or at least machine learning uh, as it stands today. And so it really comes down to productivity. So let's say you're filling orders often, or like you have to do this particular task. Um, anytime there's a repetitive task, um, at least from the automation perspective, that is ripe for machine learning. And so again, like what we like to think about is how do you go one step further than just like, okay, this is a repetitive task. There's a very obvious input and output. Um, so let's automate it. Um, we like to think about, okay, it's a non-obvious task. If you, if you're clever enough with how you collect data, there's actually a way to use artificial intelligence to make this, make this better. Right. And so that's when we start thinking about augmentation. So as an example, at least for us, when we think about this search problem or this reading comprehension problem or whatever it is that we're solving, the non-obvious task is like, Hey, here's this giant body of text understand it, understand what the person is asking and go and pull out a resource that helps here, right? Like that is, is the answer. And so from our perspective, that's still machine learning, but you just have to do it in a, in a clever way. Cause there's no, like the natural version of this and what a lot of cus- uh, competitors have tried is like create these canned responses, for example, like that's the most natural way you would think of applying AI to this kind of question. So uh, the agent creates, I don't know, 10 or 100 or whatever canned responses. And then when a question comes in, try to pick from these canned responses and that's your input and output. But we're trying to do more like generation of text, right? Which is a, a larger question, um, which is like, hey, this specific question may not have been asked before. You may not even have this exact answer, but there's enough data in here to be able to pull it out um, and send it out. So that's still AI. It's just like, in my in my opinion, it's like you apply AI algorithms as building blocks to you to solve larger problems rather than the problem you're actually paying people for or you're getting paid for be the actual like input output that you're mapping. Um, so anyway, long story short, I think in the consumer world, there's going to be a lot of assistant type things. In the enterprise world, there's a lot of room for improvement, both on what people traditionally consider automation, but also just all of the tasks that can be augmented by like another order of AI. Got it. That makes sense. And just to go back to that point. So Agatha, 
So Agatha is not just taking if-then statements or like pre-cantext. She is actually contextualizing a large amount of text. Yes, exactly. And so like, yeah, I'll actually take a quick step back around that. And that's what a lot of traditional AI for enterprise solutions have been. It's like, okay, we're going to do either a rule-based thing where like you will create these if-then statements. Um, and then there's enough AI on the front end to like detect intent. If a customer asks a certain thing to be like, Oh, that probably maps to refund. And then like your canned response gets filled in, but that's like detecting keywords and, and probably doing something like that. But yeah, with Agatha, what we like, we, we believe in going beyond just the, like the obvious, like, here's your canned response, et cetera. So it's, it's a mix of an AI problem and a search problem. And so this traditional search problem of like, Hey, given these keywords, find me this resource. We've gone and added, added an AI layer to that using deep learning and natural language understanding, thinking about things like how do humans read and understand text, right? Like how do they think about synonyms? How do they, how would a human go about doing this problem if they had the speed of a computer? Um, and that's not just like one like machine learning algorithm of like inputs to outputs. Like we have a combination of like, you know, five, plus different models that do things like, okay, given a question, how do you summarize it down to like the three points that are really important, right? So that's like taking that, breaking that into a smaller subproblem, or given a question and like a small body of text, how do you figure out what the answer is in there? And there's like a bunch of these models that we've thought about. Each one of those in and of themselves is a single, like you can think about how you would train an input-output based machine learning model to solve that problem. But then we expand out from there. We put it all together in a way that makes it a little bit more of like a cognitive uh, AI that can help solve harder problems. Do you feel like Agatha has the ability to, is there like an emotional component? Because I think one of the questions that you'll hear in one of the conversations that you'll hear, especially in the context of customer support, is it turns out like people have bad days and especially customer support reps who spend the duration of their day talking to angry customers. So I think over time, the responses can be very short or you can kind of get this feel where over time actually their emotions can impact the emotions of your customers. Have you thought about that in the context of Agatha and sort of the, the con the context that is wrapped around the text? That's really cool. I think that's a really hard problem (laughs) in general. Like we're getting towards like artificial general intelligence of like, how do you understand the, the tone and all these things? And, and it's actually like at least the baseline version of say sentiment analysis and that sort of thing on both the answers and what they're asking is important and something we think about and have in our models. But yeah, being able to have an AI that basically, you know, passes the Turing test and like, is like, Oh, you're upset today. Like, I'm just going to be nice to you in this way. Um, we don't do that today. Um, so again, right now, and this is both a, I guess a go to market decision as well as like a, a technical decision, but like we focus on the agents. Um, and so we'll give suggested answers to the agents and usually it's just around the factual stuff. And then we let them put their own flair into it. And that's exactly a place where human does it better today. Right. And so we'll let the human add their emotion and stuff like that. We'll just give them the resources and snippets of text that help them with the facts. Um, but that would be something really cool for the future. Cause like, I don't know the way I see it is like, we are kind of 
solving problems that are on the trajectory to solving AGI, artificial general intelligence problems. I mean, maybe not this year, next, maybe not in 10 years, maybe not in 20, but like these are the kinds of problems we like to think about in the future. You know, we're forethought, so we think about the future a lot. <laughs> That's great. TM. <laughs> TM, yeah, exactly. So talk about forethought. Talk, talk about medium term, talk about long term. Like how do you think about sequencing? How do you think about phasing? What does the evolution of forethought look like? So that's a great question. So to start, we like to be, well, let's put it this way. In the future, like if you fast forward, I'll say just like maybe five to 10 years-ish, we want to be that AI platform that allows you to get access to information, make you an, a genius at your job. So that means customer support. That means, you know, if you're an HR rep or an IT rep or a salesperson, like whatever job you're doing, we believe that we can be the AI platform to help you accelerate your job. Um, so what that means is both on the indexing layer, like we have to be amazing, but then also we're going to be building products on top. So each of those might look like a different integration. Like today we're integrated in Zendesk Salesforce. Maybe we're integrated into your Chrome browser or your your CRM for sales or whatever that is or Slack, right? So Agatha can kind of exist anywhere and help you do your job and kind of be that new knowledgeable coworker that you go to um, regardless of what you know, what job you're doing. And, and there's a lot of arguments for why that's going to be like a huge market in general. Um, so even if you just look at customer support, which we're doing today, that's, you know, that's huge. And then like going beyond there. Um, but then also like that's a huge mission, right? So we want to help everyone, regardless of what work you're doing. If you're a knowledge worker or knowledge professional working, you know, on a computer or wherever it is, like we want, there's a version of Agatha that can help you do that. And so that's, I would say five, 10 years out, 10, 20 years out. I, again, I do believe we're actually working towards a lot of like what could be considered AGI problems or at least like the, the natural language understanding and, and some of the other things we're, we're doing, right? So like what happens when you have an AI that can actually, um, do first or second order logic, right? Like again, another like very simple problem to describe. Um, but it's like, Hey, the boy, uh, picked up the ball. The boy, uh, went to the store. The boy dropped the ball. So like, where is the ball? Right. Like a simple thing like that. Right. Like you can actually start to think about how AI can start to do that in the future. And so long term, like it would be cool to be that, you know, the the same way Google by in the consumer world, um, in order to make their business a reality, they had to start doing a lot of AI and machine learning and kind of bringing machine learning to the forefront. We want to be able to do that for all these problems that solve the kind of enterprise. Um, so anyway, that's, you know, very long term, just kind of you know, let's just go do AGI, but uh, <laughs> kind of kidding. Um, and then in between, so that's 5, 10, 10, 20. But like right now for the next, you know, year to five years, it's like, okay, double down on customer support. There's a lot of products in there that we need to build. So answers is our first product. We're already starting to do things like categorization, case reason prediction. So allowing the AI to like route or prioritize tickets. Um, and then also analytics and insights for the managers. So like, how can we, like, we can say, Hey, you know, these questions people are asking a lot about, but you actually don't have any resources about it. Like, how do we give you those insights as a manager? Um, and then expand out to different, different help desks, different uh, locations, different data sources, et cetera. So how do you know when to expand beyond customer support? Good question. So like, it's actually a risk to expand too early. Uh, because like focus is key in, in any business. Um, and so for the near future, like, you know, the business is hyper focused on this killer use case. And so 
like in in the future, Agatha is basically a platform for intelligence, right? But in order to build the platform, you have to build the first killer use case first. Um, and so we're we're laser focused on this until we're certain we're like winning the market, right? Um, that's kind of how you think about it until it's like a self sufficient machine, and all the customer support agents are really happy. Um, and again when we think about it, it's like, Hey, this is like a really good, you know, early market. It has all the signs of like what we would need to sh- demonstrate that AI can be like a valuable product. I'm um, in a valuable business. So we do that. And, uh, maybe it's an ARR mark. I don't know. Maybe you're like, Hey, when you're at 10 million ARR and just customer support, you move on. Like, I don't know, but, um, like there, there's some reasoning and some strategy to think about. Um, and you just kind of got to balance that. I think customer support's a really interesting function within an organization. Cause I think oftentimes when you talk to consumers, it, it sort of feels like it's such a consumer facing role that we feel like we ourselves could actually do the job. Yeah. You're like, how, wait a minute, like, I could do this. this so... Like I can respond on Facebook yeah. messenger. I can, you know, open and close Zendesk tickets. But it's interesting when you start to dig into a lot of the nuances of customer support. Like I really like when you talk about augmenting humans versus replacing them, because it turns out with customer support, there are all of these different tiers that you set up internally. Like maybe certain tiers are overseas and those are easier questions that anyone could answer, but over time they become increasingly complex. And then you have like multiple different types of customer support teams. Can you kind of talk about like when you mentioned deflection or some of the actual like nuances of what Forethought is doing? Can you kind of speak to that in terms of like the different tiers or how that works inside an organization? Yeah, definitely. And so what's interesting is I think traditional approaches for AI for customer support have all been focused on tier one or even like tier zero if such a thing exists, which is like ticket deflection. So it's like the scary, simple questions that a human really should not be involved in in answering. For many, many use cases, like that's just not the case. So there's tier one, there's tier two, there's tier three. I would say for us, we're focusing on that middle tier, like the tier two where it's like, it's just enough complexity that you can't have something like really simple. Just say, Hey, here's an article. Like you should have read this article. Um, it's like this actually requires some amount of troubleshooting, um, some amount of, uh, you know, information retrieval, so to speak. So our competitive advantage really is that we can tackle these tier two and slightly more complex tickets. I think when you get to the the far end, right, like the tier three or whatever, like you still kind of need a human in the loop, especially for cases where you got like account managers or it's like a very enterprise heavy sale where like they want to be talking to somebody because they're paying a ton of money. Like you still want the human in the loop. And so it, it kind of, there's, there's a, there's a scale and there's a balance. And that's, a, that's also why I think you'll never really get rid of humans. That's why I don't like fully believe in that concept of automation. Um, because like at some point, um, when the questions start getting hard enough, you really want a human. And like the, as you talked about before, like the human touch, being able to understand like emotion and empathy and stuff like that. Like, I don't think we're near there yet for AI. So let's use AI to automate. So you can have like AI automate the tier ones and that's fine. You can have AI augment people for the tier twos. Um, and, and even to some degree, the tier threes. And I think that's like the, the bigger player, the approach that we focus on. That makes sense. I think it's interesting too. I think with the shift towards direct to consumer brands, I think that's elevated the role of customer support. Definitely. Cause I think for a lot of emerging startups who, have new products that are out to market, like having customer support in your HQ on the ground is really beneficial because you get really great early user feedback. You get to build, like you get to quality control the experience. Like I've actually heard from a number of companies where they're keeping customer support 
onshore in HQ as long as possible simply because they want that intel in in the head office where it's easy to pass it to product. It's easy to have like even a weekly review of tickets altogether. So I think we're seeing a lot of interesting shifts where historically customer support has been viewed as something that you could easily automate to an extent or send to a different country or have offshore. And I think we're starting to see trends towards the other way around, where if you want to build a customer-centric brand, you need to have a very strong customer support team. Exactly. Totally agreed. Yep. So, Dion, we talked a little bit about um, the integration with Zendesk. We talked about the integration with Salesforce. Can you walk us through, like, what does the broader ecosystem look like to date? And, like, how are you thinking about various different data sets that you'd like to give your current customers access to? Yeah, definitely. So before I dive into that, I just want to clarify that like, if you think about the way our platform works, it's kind of like a, imagine a, a dumbbell, right? So we have like the, the data sources on the ingest side. So that's where we get information from. In the center, we have our AI, the forethought engine. Um, and then, you know, above that, we have just a, a all the UI integration, so to speak. So that's like Zendesk, that's Salesforce, that might be Chrome. And and now we're actually launching Front, uh, which is a really exciting one. Yeah, so let's focus on, I guess, the top and bottom of that, right? So at the top, it's like all the UI integrations. So it's like, where does where do you live? Um, so we started with Zendesk, Salesforce. We're super excited about Front because that's not just customer support, right? Like, And in many cases, it's not customer support at all. It's really just like conversations on your workflow and stuff like that. And so giving people access to their previous conversations um, whether it's in recruiting or whether it's in uh, support or sales. Um, we're super excited about that because that also means we're expanding to different use cases and we're starting to see what that would look like. But then there are, of course, within uh, customer support, there's a bunch of different help desks um, that you can imagine, like, you know, fresh desks, so to speak, right? And so excited about that. And then on the data ingest side... Yeah, uh, we, we really listen to our customers. And so Confluence was a really, uh, heavily requested one. Um, we're seeing a few folks on things like Guru, which are like kind of more very modern, uh, knowledge spaces or even beyond knowledge bases, so to speak. Yeah. And so we're really building out a few of those. Uh, of course, the Google drives, the Dropboxes of the world, and then slowly but surely those legacy systems. So we've had like a couple requests for like, you know, your SharePoint, um, and a bunch of things like that. And so we're pretty excited. Uh, the suite is growing. Um, um, it's it's kind of interesting to to maintain, so to speak. But it's like again, our philosophy is we handle the complexity, not the customer. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, and you just raised nine million dollars. Yes, nine point something. Yes, nine point two from uh, NEA. Hey, but who's counting? Yeah, but, <laughs> but who's counting? <laughs> so, and it's interesting because you raise sort of a an early A, right? Yeah. Um, what can people learn from your experience? Because all those global founders are coming to you and other founders <laughs> saying, hey, what can they learn? So this is a scalable way you can point people to, uh, to this podcast. What did you learn during the fundraising process that you'd give to yourself when you were just starting out or other entrepreneurs? So for me, what, what was interesting was like, <laughs> you never know you're ready to fundraise until you fundraise, <laughs> so to speak. There's no like, hey, would you, how much would you invest in this company? Like the moment you ask that question, you're fundraising, right? And so it's interesting. So we, we were really fortunate, right? Like the, the company was founded in 2017. Um, we had started to talk to customers and get our early customers like very quickly after we had built our, our MVP, right? As, as, as discussed. And then, um, obviously got into TechCrunch Disrupt, which was, uh, amazing for us. 
Yeah, and then we launched there. And, you know, not only was the kind of publicity of launching, you know, publicly like that huge, it was actually kind of a forcing function for us. So once we knew we had gotten in, we were like, hey, okay, we have these early customers, we have these early metrics, but like, what does it mean to our business if we're going to be like, we're no longer in stealth mode, right? Like we're going to go out, we're going to kind of go out with a bang, so to speak. And so that gave us a lot of focus in the months preceding to just be like, here's the metrics we're going to hit and just go and hit them. Um, so for us, that was, you know, launching as, as many uh, good customers as we could um, and that sort of thing, case studies and, and that, that sort of thing. So like starting that whole process, even though we like weren't ready, right? Like it was just like, this is it. We know we have a value proposition and like kind of show that. And then pretty shortly after we fundraised. Uh, so the kind of key takeaway from that is one, like a focus is really, really, really important. And this is not really just about fundraising, but it's just like about where you want your business to be at a certain milestone. A lot of things in your business matter, but like far more things don't matter right? Like, it's just like, there are only certain things that you're going to need to just like push and to get to the next level. Um, and that was like what we learned about that. And so we got into that level in order to like, you know, come out of stealth mode. But then it was also like between that and, and a whole bunch of other things, we got a whole bunch of inbound pings from investors and that sort of thing. And we knew, um, like that was a time to raise. And so again, we, we, we didn't real like you don't know you're ready to fundraise until you fundraise and and I remember it was Ross Fubini from Village Global and I was like on the phone with them and I was getting all these pings from investors and and I was like I don't I don't even know how to run a process here and he's like Dion you're in the process right like you're in the pro I was like yeah, oh right okay I'll call you back <laughs> um I'm I'm only half joking but. Like the point was get, get the business ready, get the business right. And for us, that was like a forcing function because we were launching and then kind of everything else follows. Right. And so that was, that was it. And then, you know, and then you just, you fundraise. It's hard. Actually, another thing I will say is that like, even when things are going well with your business and you're, you know, you're a quote unquote success story by whatever the blogs and TechCrunch will say, <laughs> like fundraising is always hard. And it's just, you, yeah. you know, that going in and it's just never like, you know, Never easy. Do you feel like the early Series A has been helpful in terms of hiring or product development or certain aspects of the business? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, for us, the most important thing right now is recruiting. Like, we want to build the one of the best teams in the world, if not the best team in the world. And I'm not going to, you know, just ignore that. <laughs> but no, like, really, like, it's, I've been um, humbled by the quality of the people I get to work with. Um, just, you know, a bunch of folks who are just heavy hitters. Um, and so recruiting is just that number one thing, right? Like you, you bring good people together and give them the resources they need to succeed. And then they will just go and do good things for the business. And so recruiting has been that for us. And I think, um, being able to raise this series a, um, and, and, you know, launching the way we did has really brought a form of credibility to the business, which means that like candidates, um, whether you're engineers or designers or salespeople or whatever, know who we are now. And we're starting to get like more inbound pings and that sort of thing. And not only that, but like we have this mission to enable everyone to be a genius at their job. And that really resonates with folks because like we're looking for people who are mission driven and who want to have an impact. Um, and so a having this mission where we're like solving some of the hardest problems in AI, having uh, this mission where we're making an impact on real people. Like you can imagine, you know, this being useful at your job, right? Like um, that sort of thing. And then having kind of the backing from NEA and, and Village Global and K9 and all of our uh, giant investors, all of our amazing investors is just like shows that we're here to stay, so to speak. And so like the journey is just getting started. When I was at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg always used to say like the journey is only 1% finished. Um, and that was like, 
like so cool. Uh, and, and I, I believe in that kind of mantra for us. It's probably like you had a few zeros before that 0.001% finished or whatever, but that's, that's what the series A is kind of represented as like, okay, like we're, you know, we're here to stay. We're going to recruit the best team in the world and we're going to go solve some of the hardest problems in the world for these, uh, unsung heroes in the enterprise. Uh, Dion, I'm going to brag on your behalf for a minute. <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you're young founder. One of the most uh, promising um, and exciting companies in our portfolio. You're one of the most giving people in our portfolio to other other founders. You're also a father. How do you do it all? <laughs> what is your secret <laughs> to succeeding uh, in all areas of life? Well, thank you. I don't know. Well, the succeeding is a is a is a funny word. Uh, I appreciate that, Eric. Well, I mean, support, like, it's not, it's, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't do much, <laughs> so to speak. It's really the, the people around me. So, like, you know, obviously at home, my lovely wife, like, she's, she's a superhero for, by all means. And the team I surround myself with at Forethought, right? Like, my co-founders are, you know, two of the smartest people I know and the, our employees just, Everyone is a heavy hitter, as mentioned. I'm so humbled to be able to work with them. There's a there's a few folks uh, on our early team who I've known for a long time, and I've always been like, if I ever get a chance to work with this person, I, I'd be like super stoked. And and we have a, a couple of those people on our team already, and so I'm just like, you know, super humbled by just the team around me. So yeah, I haven't done much, but uh, forethought as a whole, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go crush it. Yeah, awesome, awesome, good. Yeah, thank you. Close. Thank you so much for both coming on this podcast. It's been a great episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.